Hello Convention of States podcast listeners. This is our weekly podcast featuring historic legacy content from our audio archives. We hope you are educated and inspired by this week's episode. At the closing of the 2022 Convention of States Reclaiming Liberty Summit, Tim Dunn shares a word of encouragement from the early church for Convention of States. Tim Dunn is chairman of the board for Convention of States Action and a teacher for a church in Midland, Texas. Our speaker this morning is a co-founder of Convention of States. He's a personal mentor to Mark Meckler and many others, has served on the COS board since the founding. He's uh, the founder and CEO of Crown Crest Operations, one of the most successful oil companies in Texas. We got a few people from Texas here. Come on now, this whole week you guys have been screaming. Beyond these things, he's a consummate student of the Word of God, a faithful disciple, always seeking to obey God's call in his life, and has co-created many resources to help people grow closer in their, to their Creator, including a phenomenal free daily devotional at yellowballoons.net. Uh, I personally subscribe to it, and I've found it a blessing on many, many occasions, and just be, it's like, did you write this for me this morning? <laughs> So if you are not subscribed to it, I highly encourage you to subscribe to it. It's been a huge blessing to me. His mark on COS is indelible. And I am confident this morning that you will be blessed by the word that he's prepared for us. So please give a warm welcome to our friend Tim Dunn. Thank you. Thank you very much. You don't know if this is going to be any good or not. I don't think you should do <laughs> wait, wait and see here. But um, it's really great to be in a room of people that are serious about living out their faith. It's inspiring to be a part of you. And um, I hope that this morning we can gather together around something we all share, which is a love of living out our faith in politics. Now, I like to say the Bible is mainly about politics. And I say that to be provocative, but it's also true. If you look at a word count, it may be 60 times that it talks about heaven or hell, something like that. But there's thousands of instances where government, king, kings, kingdoms. It's, it's what the context of the whole thing's mainly about. And if you just think about it for a minute, politics is people engaging with one another in an organized way. And all organization is based on some kind of values. And values come from your beliefs. So really, politics and religion are inseparable. You, you can't have one without the other. The reason why the Marxists did this religion and politics don't mix is because they have divine, defined religion as all beliefs other than theirs. <laughs> and their beliefs aren't even reasonable. I mean, it takes a lot more faith to believe all this just showed up than it does that somebody made it, right? So they have much greater faith than we do. But the way they've defined it, and they've gotten away with it to this point, is the only acceptable means of values for organizing is their materialistic values. Well, that's one of the big things we've got to overthrow. But our organizing principle is love your neighbor as yourself. That is a political organizing principle. And it goes for uh, a human organization of family all the way up to nation and everything in between. So love, 
that's, that's what we stand for. That's what we're for. We're for love, they're for power and control. I'm also excited to be among a group of people that care about the Great Commission. You know, the Great Commission starts with a political statement. You ever think about that? The first part of the Great Commission is, all authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Now, if somebody alive today said that, you would think they were trying out for the part of Lex Luthor, wouldn't you? I mean, think about somebody saying that. But that's what Jesus claimed. And the point is who the actual ruler is. So after he said that, the disciples said, well, is it now you're going to return the kingdom to Israel? It's a perfectly reasonable question. Jesus had claimed all authority over heaven and earth. And he, he was the descendant of David. And they all expected him to sit on the throne. So why shouldn't they ask that? And his answer was, not now. That comes later. But here's what I'm doing. I'm leaving that power and authority to you. And I want you to go do two things. I want you to baptize, which is I want you to get people into this kingdom, spiritual kingdom. And then I want you to teach them to obey my commands. Well, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about making disciples, learners. Just, that word just means learners. So, get, becoming a child of God is fairly simple. You have to have enough faith to believe. This is John 3, 14 through 16. And Jesus is talking to a Hebrew scholar named Nicodemus. And he's telling him, here's how you get born again. And Nicodemus is like, what do you mean? You can't crawl back in your mom's womb? What are you talking about? And Jesus is like, you're a scholar and you don't understand this? It's, it's fairly simple. As the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So Nicodemus was a scholar. He would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. When the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they got bit by snakes and were dying. And they said, God, please help us. So God said to Moses, have Aaron fashion a brass snake and put it on a pole. Anybody with enough faith to go look at that snake and say, I don't want to die of poison. I'd rather live. I hope this works. That's all it took. And Jesus says, I'm going to be lifted up on a pole too. And anybody that says, I don't want to die of the poison of sin... I sure hope God can save me. That's all it takes. But being a disciple means obey my commands. Make disciples, teaching them to obey my commands. And that's what most of the Bible is about. Well, how does the Bible tell us to make disciples? You know, it's really interesting. In the epistles, I only found one instance where the Bible says, share your faith with your mouth. And it says, there are plenty of examples, but I'm talking about commands. And it says, when someone sees that you're living under persecution, you're being beat on, you're being lied about and slandered, which if you're in this world we're in is going to happen, right? And you're glad about it and you're thankful that you got the privilege of doing that. And somebody asks you, what's wrong with you? 
Be ready to give a defense of the hope that's within you. So even that one is live it, live it, live it, live it, live it. And that's what we're called to do. Every page of the Bible, it's live it. So here's what I hope to cover today. We're to be examples in politics, in our families, in our jobs, in our communities, in our school districts, in our towns, in our states, and in our nation. We're called to be examples, light. That's what we're called to do. So we're going to look at two examples that God gave us. The first example is a treaty that he made with Israel and what he told them to do. And the second example is Jesus. And then we're going to look at the primacy of love because that's our primary organizing principle. So first, example of a treaty. Did you know the Ten Commandments is basically a treaty? There was an ancient form of treaty called a suzerain vassal treaty. And in this treaty, the suzerain was the superior king, typically, and he would make a treaty with an inferior king. And the basic way this treaty worked was it would say, if you will serve me well, I will give you blessings. And if you rebel against me, I'm going to give you cursings. There's an additional thing, blessing that would come out of this, is if you were really faithful as a vassal to this suzerain, and again, this is a typical treaty structure in this, in this era, then the suzerain king would adopt you as a son. And he would say, today I have begotten you. And I will be as to you a father and you as to me as a son because of your faithful service. And this actually answers a question that a lot of people have pondered over is how can the son who existed as son from eternity have been begotten? Well, the reason is because when he became human and he was faithful and obedient even to death on the cross, his reward was the earth. To rule and he was adopted as a son as a human that was his reward it was an acknowledgement of his faithful service the cursings would could include annihilation most rebellions in the Bible are tax rebellions you ever notice this so this we can see this in the case of Rehoboam Rehoboam was the um, right after Solomon and the people come to Rehoboam and say you know our taxes are really high if you'll give us a tax cut we'll serve you gladly so Rehoboam says well let me think about it and he goes to his dad's advisors and his dad's advisors say supply-side economics work that's not exactly in the Bible <laughs> But he says, uh, yeah, do it. Give them a cut. And he talks to his friends and they say, raise their taxes. Make it even harder. And he takes their advice. And so he says, uh, you, you, think, you think my dad was tough? Wait till you get done with me. So Israel, the ten northern tribes, said, we're out of here then. We're seceding. So then Rehoboam, 
This is in 2 Chronicles 10.18. It says, Then King Rehoboam sent Hadoram, who was in charge of revenue. Hadoram, in charge of revenue, means, we would use the term, taxes. But the children of Israel stoned him with stones and he died. Kind of makes you feel warm on the inside a little bit. <laughs> that is not a biblical example we should follow, however. Now, Rehoboam was going to go and go to war with Israel, and, the, and the, God sent a prophet and said, you'll lose. So that's how Israel and Judah became two different kingdoms. It's a tax revolt. Another example of cursings for rebelling is in Genesis. So we read about these uh, five, five kings that were in the Jordan Valley there. Sodom, Gomorrah were two of the kingdoms. And Abraham was in the vicinity. And they served Cheddar Laomer. I'll just call him Cheddar. Twelve years, Genesis 14, 4. Twelve years they served Cheddar Laomer, and the thirteenth year they rebelled. Which means they stopped paying tribute. So Cheddar brought three kings with him. And he's going to say, you don't pay my tribute. I'm just going to come and ravage you and take everything you have. That's the deal. So he comes, and four kings beat five kings, and they take all their stuff, and they're carrying away the booty, part of which include Lot and his family, which is Abraham's nephew. So Abraham takes, now think about this, you, you, this will change your view of Abraham. He takes 318 men raised in his own household who he trained. You tend to think of them. Uh, Abraham kind of was an old man with a, with, a, with a shepherd's crook or something, right? He trained at 318 guys. And then he and those 318 guys catch up with the four kings, attack them at night from various sides, whip them all. So this is SEAL Team 6. Take all the stuff and carry it back. And then he gave everything back except the 10% he gave to Melchizedek. Well, this is a, this is a Susan and Vassal treaty being enforced. Well, God put a Susan and Vassal treaty together for, the, for Israel. And if you, if you want to go through Deuteronomy, it's, it's actually set up this way. The Ten Commandments are the Ten Articles, just like the Constitution. And then you go through the Deuteronomy, and each of those articles is expanded on. You can think of it like the enacting regulations. Okay? And so, it, but it begins with this, Exodus 19, 7 and 8. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words, Ten Commandments, that the Lord commanded them. And the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That is the contract being signed. It's a treaty. You can see this treaty structure in Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14. This commandment, it's, this is at the end when Moses is kind of capstoning all this stuff after it's all been explained. This commandment I command you today is not too mysterious for you. Nor is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, who's going to go up to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? You don't have to ask an angel to explain this stuff. It's simple. 
Nor is it beyond the sea that you'll say, who'll go over the sea for us and bring it to us that may, we may hear it and do it? You don't have to have a consultant come in and explain this. This isn't rocket science. This isn't brain surgery. It's simple. But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. And this is the biblical sequence that we see all the time. Hear it, believe it, do it. Believe it, speak it, do it. So this, this ties into the three things we can control, which is one of your servant leadership tools. Right? You control who you trust. Trust that God's way of doing things actually turns out best for us. Blessings. And then adopt the perspective, second thing we can control, that His ways are in our best interest. You know, look at life through that. Have a renewed mind. And then take action based on that. The third thing we can control. Deuteronomy 30, 15, and 16 says, See, I have set before you today life and good. That's if you follow my way. And death and evil. That's if you follow this other way. So, it's up to you. You choose. You choose what you want. You want good or you want evil? You want life or you want death? You choose. I'm just making it really clear to you what your choice is. I want you to live and multiply. Now, just think about practically. Let's think about the Ten Commandments. Tell everybody the truth. Protect their property just as like it was yours. Protect their family just like it was yours. Protect their person just like it was yours. What kind of society is that going to create? Amazing. There's going to be cooperation. There's going to be mutual trust. You, instead of spending your energy protecting what you have, you're going to be spending your energy creating things new. There's going to be marketplace. There's going to be trading. A small percentage of the economy is going to go into protection. But on the other hand, if you say, you know, I'm going to use my power to exploit you to my benefit, what kind of society is that going to be? Lawless, violent, extractive, exploitive? It's going to be terrible. And you're going to have to spend all of your energy just trying to stay alive and protect yourself. It's going to be an impoverished society. So most of these blessings and cursings are just the natural consequence of doing what's in our best interest versus doing what's not. But then God says, I'll pile on with extra supernatural things as well. Now, in this treaty document, it has the rule of law. The legislative branch is God. And he said, I get to make the rules. The first five commands basically say, I make the rules. And there's consent of the governed. You're going to decide which one of these roads you're going to go on. You're going to decide. Appoint from among yourself judges. You're going to decide and you're going to judge each other. Consent of the governed. And then private property. You either honor it and get blessings or you dishonor it and get cursings. It's pretty blunt. And the consequence is enormous. Well, think about our society. 
our society was basically founded on this same basic principle, rule of law. In ours, it's the Constitution. Consent of the governed, which about 80% of America say we do not have now, which is what Convention of States is all about, to get that back. And private property. We honor the individual choices of people. We honor the personal sovereignty of every person. It, human dignity comes about largely through getting to make decisions for yourself. And when we have a government that makes decisions for people, it's stealing human dignity. So, Israel had a choice. They could choose to be a holy nation and show an example of how you ought to live, or they could fall into the same kind of practice that their surrounding nations did. Now, you can go to Leviticus 18, and you can look and see what life was like in Egypt and Canaan. And it starts and it says, do not do what you saw in Egypt that you're coming out of. And do not do what you're going to see in Canaan where you're going to. Don't, and then it goes through this whole thing of amazing, every kind of incest you can think of. Don't have sexual relationship with your kids or with your mother or your dad or your mother-in-law. I'm thinking to myself, what kind of place was Egypt and Canaan? <laughs> well, it was the kind of place that had child sacrifice, the ultimate exploitation. It was an exploitive society. And God is saying, don't be an exploitive to society. Don't be a biting and devouring society. That's what leads to death and destruction. Instead, be a society that blesses people by loving. And in doing that, you're creating an example to other nations to follow a holy priesthood. Now, what did Jesus leave us to do? He left us to do that basic same thing, to be that kind of example. In our constitution, we the people are the ultimate sovereigns. And if you look at Romans 13, Romans 13, 4, it says, For he, the ruler God appointed, because God appoints all authorities, is God's minister to you for good. Government is good when it does its job. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Government's job is to execute wrath on evil. And when it does, it's executing something that God appointed it to do, and that's God's wrath. It's a good thing, government is. Well, who has God appointed as the authority in America? Us. And we, the people, have atrophied our citizen responsibility for the last 50, 75 years because we turned it over to experts. Well, that happened to Israel as well. Israel said, hey, we're tired of all this self-governance. After about 450 years, they were self-governing. And they said, hey, we want a king. We want a king to rule over us. We want a king that will fight our battles for us. That sound familiar? 
take care of us. Do the hard work of governing for us. We don't want to do it ourselves anymore. It's hard work. We want a king that will judge us. We don't want to do the hard work of judging ourselves. We, we, we want a king that will make us be like the other nations. We don't want to be exceptional anymore. And God said, okay, I'm going to judge you for rejecting me as being king over you. When, when we're self-governing, we're choosing God as our king. And when we're not self-governing, we're rejecting God as our king. And God said, I'm going to judge your nation by giving you what you wanted. You know, have you ever noticed that's mostly how God judges people, by giving them what they wanted? He said, go back and, go back and uh, warn them. You, your king's going to take your sons away from your family business and put them in his administration and in his military. He's going to take your daughters, who should be bringing son-in-laws into your family business, and he's going to make them his slaves. He's going to take your property, that's your, your sacred possession, and he's going to give it to his cronies. He's going to take 10% of everything you make. Oh, that it was only 10%. And then you're going to say, we're his sl slaves, we're his servants, and you're going to cry out to me, and I'm not going to listen, because you got what you wanted. And people said, no, that's okay. Okay, well, that's where we are as a country right now. We're deciding who our king is. And you... And all the people out there that are with us that are stepping up to say, no, we want God as king. We want to be self-governing. And we're going to put government back where it belongs, setting boundaries rather than making decisions for us. We are fighting to be the people that say, no, we don't want a king, a human king. That's us. That's the treaty. So now, the second example we're going to look at is the example of Jesus. And in the New Testament, you basically have this same idea of life versus death. We can see this in Galatians 5.13. In Galatians 5.13, it says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So that's our charge, to love. That's our organizing principle for politics. Our alternative is bite and devour. You see plenty of that when you go in the legislatures, don't you? Let's not it be named among us. All the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, this basic proposition God gave Israel wasn't replaced in the New Testament. It was fulfilled through Christ. And it's fulfilled through us when we walk in the Spirit. And when we walk in the Spirit, what does it look like? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, self-control, which is self-governance. That's what it looks like to walk in the Spirit. And when we do that, we're fulfilling the law and we're doing this thing that brings blessing. Whether other people respond to it or not. We're being what God appointed us to be. He left. He left us with this job 
And when we do our job, we're winning. It doesn't matter what results are happening around us. We choose liberty when we choose to love. Now that Galatians passage goes on to say, but beware if you bite and devour that you be consumed by one another. That's what Satan wants us to do in this country is consume one another. And you know, you know how we might stop that from happening? Love. Now, what does love mean? Does love being, mean, mean being nice? You know niceness is not a biblical value. Niceness is the value every coward has. And if you go to Revelation 21.8, it has a list of things that go in the lake of fire. Characteristics. Unbelieving. Liars. Murderers. You know what the first thing in the list is? Cowardly. The Bible does not like cowards. It takes courage to be kind. Kindness is doing for someone else what that, that can't pay you back. Any coward can be nice. Speaking the truth in love takes great courage. And that's what our society needs. After Jesus ascended from earth into heaven, he appointed apostles to inaugurate a new age, the church age. And he appointed the apostle Paul who says this concerning the law. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And when we walk in the spirit, we will reap benefit. Galatians 6, 8 through 10. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. If we fall into biting and devouring, we get consumed. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Everlasting life is a gift and a reward. We experience the maximum life we can gain when we follow God's ways. And let us not grow weary in doing good. Don't you get weary sometime of being good when everybody else is bad? For in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. Brothers and sisters, we cannot lose heart. Our country depends on it. Our families depend on it. Our kids depend on it. Our grandchildren depend on it. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So, I've lost my place in the notes. I skipped ahead. This is an oft-quoted verse, 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, that, didn't, that does not say if those people 
It says, if my people. So when we walk in love and we walk in the Spirit and we fulfill the law and we make disciples, as we go, okay, that, that word go and go and make disciples, it's a participle phrase, as you go. Whatever you're doing. The best place to go is in the darkest places. When we go into governmental politics, we're going into the darkest places. And we have the opportunity to make disciples in the places that need it the most. It's a high and holy calling. And when we say, I see my country's wickedness and I'm going to go into one of the main places it's coming from and I'm going to love people and I'm going to speak the truth. We're doing something that's a great spiritual ministry. And we can't lose because we're doing what God asks us to do. He doesn't ask us to achieve certain results. He asks us to be faithful, courageously. So, that brings us to the third point, which is love. We've seen God's treaty where he says, I, here's, here's where your self-interest lies. Do what I ask you to do. And the way you treat other people creates amazing blessing if you love one another. And if you're going to exploit one another, it's going to be terrible. And that's true in your family. It's true in your company. It's true among your friends. It's true in your community, wherever it is. And then we go to the New Testament. We saw an example of Jesus and his apostles. And what they set forth is Jesus fulfilled the law and he sent his spirit and he wants you to use that power to teach people to be his disciples and walk in the spirit and fulfill the law, which is to love other people. So then the third point is to just talk about the primacy of love. And let's first begin with a warning. The warning is this, if we lose our love, we lose our witness. We can see this in Revelation 2. Revelation 2 has, uh, starts uh, letters to seven different churches. And generally speaking, the way the letters go is, here's what you're doing good. It's like a performance appraisal. Here's what you're doing good. Here's where you need to improve. And Ephesians, I'm sorry, Ephesus, where the Ephesians were, the letter to the Ephesians, uh, gets a, a huge commendation. They were great on the truth. They stood for the truth. They got rid of false teachers. They stood against uh, things that were wrong. And it, that's commended, absolutely commended. But then Jesus says, you've lost your first love. And because of that, I got to take your lampstand out, which means I don't need your witness anymore. I got to have truth, but I got to have it with love. If you don't have both of those, I don't need your witness. So we've got the truth. We're, good, we're great truth people. What we also have to do is love. Not niceness. Love. Love means I have your best interest at heart. Love is patient, which means I'll endure agitation to get to a result. Love is kind, which means I'll do good things for others that can't pay me back. Love does not do wrong, which means I'll be shrewd, but not evil. 
And Paul says, if I do even to the point of having my body be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. The ultimate thing that love does is it gives us the greatest experience of life that we can have. We're the ultimate beneficiary of loving others. This is the greatest way for us to benefit, is to love others. So, that's what Jesus wants. He wants that example from us. Now, the second warning is that when things get lawless, it gets harder to love. And there's a lot of lawlessness happening in our world. And this is a warning from Matthew. And in this passage, Jesus is answering three questions asked by his disciples about the end of the age. And we're going to read some verses when he's asking, answering the third and last question, which is, when will, the, when will be the end of the age? And many people think we're living in the end of the age. And Jesus says a number of things about this, but the part we'll focus on is part of the end of the age where there'll be a great rise in lawlessness, which I think we're living in, and persecution of those who would stand against lawlessness, which I think we're living in. So this is Matthew 24, 9 through 11. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And many will be offended will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many prophets, false prophets, will rise up and deceive many. This is a terrible time where people will hate those who love God and are actively trying to kill them. And then Matthew 24, 12 says this, And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures the end will be saved. And in the context here, the salvation needed is to be saved from having your love grow cold. Because if your love grows cold, your witness is marred. And what Jesus assigned us to do is be his witnesses. And so we're not doing our job. So we can't let our love grow cold. We can be a light in a dark place. And you know the best place to grow love is with one another. And out of the love for one another comes love for other people. It ends on a hopeful note, Matthew 24. It says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. What we're really doing, when you get right down to it, is preaching the gospel. And when we preach it to our nation, we're preaching it to all nations. Every action we take, speaking the truth in love, is preaching the gospel. Every action we take, speaking the truth in love, is making disciples. Every action we take, speaking in the truth in love, is sowing to the Spirit. And it is from that we reap the great harvest. So in spite of what the world says, in spite of how it pushes back, what we know is true, that if we will endure in loving, and if we do not allow ourselves to grow weary in doing good, we win. Now winning may not look like we wish it would, but that's God's decision what winning looks like. 
Isn't it great to know the outcome of the game before you start playing? All we have to do is follow that path and we win. If you resist the devil, he will flee from you. There's a lot of evil in our society. Our job is to resist. And when we resist, we win. It doesn't say we'll survive. It does say we'll win. I pray God's blessing on you. I ask God, will you please let us be your witness to the world. In Jesus' name, amen. To learn more, visit conventionofstates.com slash pod.